This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. In today's episode of the podcast, we had a very special guest. He's been on the podcast many times before, and that is Dr. Harry Weisinger, the My Performance Doctor, and he came on to chat all things nutrition. He is our resident nutrition expert. Uh, he helps athletes get in shape, lose some weight, uh, and more importantly, fuel properly for whatever their race is, whether that's a short cycling race or a long endurance event, such as a uh, triathlon, 70.3, or even up to Ironman. And as always, we find these uh, chats incredibly invaluable. Uh, we love the way Harry is able to articulate himself and articulate his points. It just gets you to think about things in a really easy and logical manner. So without a doubt, this is uh just another chat we've had with Harry that you will absolutely enjoy. So without further ado, I mean, we, we touched on everything from the biggest thing that Harry has been working on so far and experimenting on, which is a very unique topic, uh, his experience with an endurance event himself and how he prepared for it, more specifically a calorie calculator to work out how many calories you need for a specific endurance event, uh, what the difference is between fueling for high intensity events and longer duration events, the difference in quality of foods we talked about, we touched on low GI versus high GI, low fiber versus high fiber in relation to different events and just your um, meal plan in general and how he's best helping his patients uh, get the best outcomes in just either their diet or their racing performance. So please look forward to, we hope you enjoy the chat. Okay, we've got Dr. Harry, the My Performance Doctor, back on the podcast for a third time, a record third time for our guests so far, and they are, without a doubt, the most listened to episodes. So, Dr. Harry, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure to be back, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, we normally start our normal episodes with some gratitude, and we don't do it with every single guest, but uh, with certain guests, we still do, and, and Dr. Harry was kind enough to get involved with the gratitude, so... Uh, we're going to go around and, and do our own gratitude today. And we ask you to ask yourself, what are you grateful for for the week? So, Dad, welcome to the episode. You can start us off. What are you grateful for? Thanks, Jordan. And good to see you again, Harry. Um, really love these episodes with you. There's uh, so much gold nuggets being thrown by you, which uh, the listeners absolutely love. Um, and that sort of uh, follows on with my gratitude. Uh, it's amazing to me how many people we've interviewed over the journey and how willing they are to share their knowledge and and they're not getting anything out of it except uh, the knowledge that they're helping other people who are listening. And I just think it's brilliant that guys like you, Harry, are so willing to come on board and and share the you know stuff that you know that will help the listeners uh, be better athletes um, by fueling correctly. So yeah, that's my gratitude. I totally second that. Great one, Harry. You can go next. Your gratitude. Well, I just, um, if I could just start in response to Jerry, you know, um, the, the reason to become a doctor is, is really to the desire to help people. And, and in fact, um, if I'm not mistaken, the origin of, of the word doctor actually comes from an ancient word for teacher. So um, it's all part of the, it's all part of it. For me, I, lo- I do love um, I love talking, as you know, <laughs> and um, and I do like to teach. And and of course, when you teach someone, you learn yourself, you know, because you have to assimilate that information in your brain 
to be able to convey it to someone else. So it's my absolute pleasure, um, as always, to be on. Gratitude? Um, well, I have a few, actually. I'll try and be, I'll try and be brief and succinct. Um, I'll start off with a, with a bit of a strange one out of um, left field, you could say. Um, I'm grateful for baseball. I know it sounds weird, but when I was a teenager, I played baseball competitively. I, I was reasonably good, actually, um, which explains the fact that I didn't find endurance sports till way later. And um, I, I let it slip into my past. And more recently, just through chance, I, I started really taking an interest in the Major League Baseball. And we're, we're now able to watch baseball games. And I know you guys are avid sports fans, but I can watch major league games every day if I wanted and had the time um, for, you know, like $30 for the year. And um, it's rekindled my interest. It's actually settled me down to have something like this that I can look at for a few minutes every day. I'm following a team. I've followed the Yankees since I was 15. And now I'm watching games. I've got my kids, you know, taking some interest in it. And I'm really grateful that the technology's enabled sports fans like me to, to be able to tap into that. Um, maybe a less selfish gratitude is I'm grateful for science. Science has got us to where we are. Science is the reason we don't die at 30 years of age. We die, our life expectancy now and our quality of life is different because of science. It's the reason you can jump on a plane and be in a different continent. It's, it, it's the reason we can sit here having a conversation despite being in three separate places. That's science. Science is uncontroversial. It's indisputable. And I'm sorry if I... I'm sort of taking your platform, but I really, if there's anyone in doubt, if there's anyone with any doubt that the science behind the effort to control COVID, which is, let's face it, it's basically throwing a real spanner in the, in the works of everyone's lives. Uh, I just, from my perspective, and this isn't a, this is not a political statement, this is a statement where I, I just want to be clear from my perspective as a citizen and as a doctor that the science of vaccines is robust. It, as I said, we have long relied on vaccines and these vaccines have been in the pipeline for a decade. They weren't invented overnight. They've been put in the arms of now hundreds of millions of people. So if you're wondering if they're safe or well-tested, wonder no more. There's, there's never been any drug tested this well, uh, you know, in the history of humankind. And, and also, if problems were to appear, they'd appear really quickly. So we know what problems occur. We know the frequency that they occur and we know how to treat them. And it, again, as far as I'm concerned, it's uncontroversial. This is not a political statement, but just for people that are, are curious, and I've had some patients ask me about vaccines and whether they should get them. You're choosing between the risk of basically having an adverse effect to COVID versus having an adverse effect to a vaccine. 
that's the choice you're making. It's not the risk of the vaccine versus nothing. And um, so I, I just wanted to be crystal clear, and I am grateful for the for the hard work of the scientists and all the all the um, medical professionals for helping this push. And I hope um, that people do come around and we get a high vaccination rate, which will allow us to move back to a normal life so that we're not racing on Zwift uh, and we're out racing in the real world. So that's what I'm grateful for. George. Two cracking points, Harry, and we don't mind you using this platform at all to share that message because we couldn't agree anymore. So uh, yeah, two brilliant points to start and a little bit off track here, but I know that you are a little bit of a philosopher yourself. And am I right in saying that you find value in stoic philosophy, which is very similar to where something like gratitude comes from? Absolutely. I mean, and I, you know, it's interesting listening to you guys. Uh, it's interesting listening to you guys talk about motivation. And, and when I was listening to your podcast on motivation, it, it, gelled with me completely because you do take a very stoic philosophy and and I know Jerry can't help but be stoic uh, in in his approach when your when your motivation is low simply ask yourself what if this was the last time that I ever got to you know eat ice cream ride my bike see my friends mm. it changes your mindset instantly and um, yeah I use it's I use that approach, which has you know come to be known as the Stoic philosophy. I use it now more than ever with the challenges that we're going through. Um, I don't I don't think I can overstate how big an impact the last eighteen months has had on my life. You know, from a mental health point of view, I've never been you know, within QE of a mental health issue. But I tell you what, the last 18 months has pushed me right to the brink. And, I, and I've got it good, you know, relative to, to so many others. Um, you know, I, I'm in good health and, you know, well off and I get to do what I want uh, for a job and, and recreationally and I've got a great family um, and I've had it tough. So I know people are doing it tough. And sometimes the only way to get through it is to have, have an approach, you know, to, to help change your mindset. And I think stoicism is a, is a good start. So if, if your listeners haven't, um, you know, had a proper look at that approach, they really should because it is very valuable in promoting gratitude. I agree. And uh, for my gratitude, I'm going to come full circle and bring it back to dad. Uh, I am grateful that you are my coach as well as my dad, obviously. Um, recently, I've been on a new bike and when I got on it, my watts were a lot lower than on my, my other bike and it was a big ego blow. And uh, over the last month, I've really leaned on you as a coach to uh, try and get me back on track. And I'm really feeling more and more informed as every week goes by. And um, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I tell all our athletes not to question the super coach, just follow the process. Yet I think I question you the most. And each week we look at our tra my training program and I say, are you sure about this or what should we do here? Yet you always come up with a session that 
is extremely valuable and um, is obviously helping me get better. So uh, that's my gratitude for this podcast episode. Well, that's been an interesting start to our program and I love it. Um, <laughs> it's uh, fantastic. Your, your observations, Harry, are uh, as usual, spot on. And uh, and yeah, you know, we're all being challenged, aren't we? Like we've never been challenged before. And and your ability to keep your head whilst other people are losing their minds is probably the biggest thing I'm learning um, in the last two years is to, you know, is to, I've kept saying it so much along this journey, you know, uh, adapt or get left behind. And and you don't want to be one of those people who are getting left behind, but you need help and everybody needs help because it's not that easy. I'm making it very simple here. It, it, you know, people are, are challenged in different degrees and some are being challenged 100% of the time and some of us are being challenged 1% of the time and and everybody's in the in the section between the 100 and the 1 and and we've just got to really be a bit more caring with each other I think and a little bit more you know helpful to to get people through these periods um and I think that's one thing we're learning is is you know it's not black and white all the time um you know you either can't train or you can train it's not it's not as simple as that you know there's so many things that are actually in each each person's life that are affecting decision making and 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 at the end of the day you are in charge of your own decisions and you're in charge of your own outcomes um and if you're if you're having trouble with that that's what you need to reach out and and i think that's the message that i think uh i th- certainly have learned that I, I was a bit of a harsh taskmaster i think but i've definitely learnt a lot myself um, in the last two years about being more um, uh, amicable to to other um, versions of things and having to adapt and um, and be creative and and trying to okay we can't we can't achieve that let's let's try this angle you know looking at things from different perspective and and not being so black and white I think that's a really good thing to have learnt in my journey in the last two years I think I think it's really good to to be vulnerable and to be able to um, accept that you don't know everything and and that you're learning on the journey just as much as everybody else is who is struggling as much. Um, and it's funny you only learn about yourself more when you struggle more, and um, and that's when <laughs> that's when you look back and go, wow. And if I look at you, Harry, and I know we probably want to talk about this, you know, you say you've been challenged, but you know, I look at what you've achieved in this last two years you know you've got yourself to the fittest point you've ever been in your cycling career and you finished the melbourne to warning which is one of the most challenging events that anybody on a bike can do and not only did you finish it you finished it in the time that you expected the condition that you you know that you pushed yourself to that point where you know you've got to look back and say that's one of the most you know best achievements you've, you've ever done except for the one that's sitting over your left shoulder um, <laughs> With the with the Aussie jersey, um, so so in this period you've done those two key things, and and the the thing I want to get across is yes we've been challenged, yes it's a hard period, but look at what you've done in that two years, it's outstanding, and and they're the things we need to be looking at, and not the negative things about how shit things are at the moment, you know, um, there's there's always a good thing coming out of every negative thing, you've just got to find it. Yeah, I think, I think, Jerry, to that point, what just reflecting on the, the group, the Trivello group, it, because so much of what we experience is related to our mindset 
you know, in you can change how you feel by changing your mindset. I think we've all done that. You know, you get a little bit of bad, you get a little bit of bad news and you feel worse, physically feel worse. You get a little bit of good news or a, you know, a bit of a win and you feel better. So we know the relationship between mindset and our, and our experience of how we feel. So we're, we're tracking along in this indisputably shit period in the world. And then you surround yourself with people that are seemingly pretending everything is normal, which is the guys I train with, yourself and the guys I train with. And they don't know that I'm just pretending and I don't know that they're just pretending. But at the end of the day, all of our mindsets change and then it feels like everything's all right. And this is, this is not a, this was not an accident and it, it certainly explains, you know, speaking for my own achievements and um, I consider myself to be possibly the luckiest cyclist on earth. <coughs> to have achieved them, those things. Um, but as I said, I think the collective mentality of just come on, keep pushing on, we can't control that, but we can control this. Uh, let's, let's stay as fit as we can. All right, we'll race indoors instead. Oh, the door's open and now we, now we can race in the Nationals, now we can race in the Warnie, et cetera. And I think that's I think that's been super valuable for me. I've I've I couldn't possibly have achieved what I did without the without the coaching group, the group of people um, that I trained with. But anyway, enough about me. On that note, let's get into some of the meat of the episode. And it's funny, given the context of the kind of chat we've had in this first 15 minutes of the conversation, um, you you take a step back and it's almost a higher level type of conversation when you're thinking about the broader context of life, when you start to talk about uh, trivial things that we can sometimes put so much stress over, like your diet, like your weight, uh, like your nutrition, uh, can seem a little bit insignificant in context. But also, uh, this is a really uh, fun and interesting uh, topic to talk about. So we want to get into it. And uh, it is a really helpful topic uh, for a lot of people. So we're very curious to know, uh, Harry, what have you recently been experimenting with, researching, working on? Uh, we're curious to dive right into that. Well, as you know, George, I've, with respect to experimenting, and I, I experiment a fair bit on myself, as you know, yeah. um, the last three months, I haven't been all that well, to be honest. Um, in general, so I haven't I haven't really done much except um, I last year I started doing some research on the effect of sauna on wellness and longevity and athletic performance. I took an interest and I was lucky enough to be in a position to order a sauna. Um, don't tell, tell me it's in the bedroom as well. It's, not, the bedroom. it's <laughs> not in the bedroom, but it, it's out the back. Yeah. Um, they're not as, as expensive as you'd think, but they do take a long time to come from wherever they're coming from. Um, so I, I got myself a Finnish sauna. Now, the background to this is that for quite a while now, there's been research into the effect of sauna on 
cardiovascular disease risk, sudden cardiac death, um, and all-cause mortality, so dying of any cause. And there was a, there's a quite famous study that was done in Finland, and it took middle-aged blokes, um, thousands of them, in fact, and followed them for 20 years and broke these guys into groups that because everyone in Finland has a sauna, so you can't have no sauna and the no sauna group and the sauna group. You have the doesn't sauna very much group mm. and the saunas quite a bit and then the saunas all the time group. And it turns out that having a sauna four times a week for 20 minutes lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease and death by over half. Now that, I, I just want to point this out, that is a greater effect than any drug that's ever been tried. So it's profound. Now, so I got attracted to this because I'm interested in living to 100 despite a very dodgy set of genes and, and so forth. Um, and, you know, you've got to ask what, what on earth is sauna doing? Um, to, to explain this. Alongside that, there's, I had a friend that worked for the cats and he was telling me one time that in the pre-season, they would get the players to do, they'd get on the ergo, so on a bike, and they'd put them in the hot. So they'd put them in a humid room with hot air blowing on them and they'd just get them to pedal at 150, 200 watts. And, and I asked him, you know, why, why would you do this to your footy players? And he said, well, it increases their full blood count better than anything we can give them legally. Hmm. And that's what the studies show is that it expands your plasma volume, which is a critical metric uh, in athletic performance. So the more blood you've got, um, the more oxygen you can carry. And there have been quite a number of studies particularly in, in things like cross-country skiing, but also there have been studies in, in running and cycling that demonstrate that sauna after exercise and just a few exposures to this increases athletic performance. So that's what I've been looking at lately. Um, I'm, I'm early in my experiment. Uh, so I've, I've had this thing in my backyard now for about a month. I've used it every day. I can't say I'm breaking any records yet, but again, that's <laughs> that's due to other problems. But is that's the, what I'm working on at the moment. And is 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 the twenty minutes important? Because I know a lot of people go into an hour sauna. Is that too long? And is you the couldn't frequency... in, in the in the sauna in the in at the appropriate temperature? I don't think you could stay in for an hour. I, I mean, you could. Some might, but. I'm ready. I, it feels like it feels like an FTP test. That that's the discomfort at the 20 minute mark. I, I'm ready to I'm ready to barge out of the room. So at, at somewhere between 80 and 110 degrees in the sauna and about I don't know what percent humidity, but pretty humid because you put the water on the on the heater. Yeah. That's fine um, because I don't I don't see many public saunas above you know seventy five so 
Yeah, I think I think 75 is manageable. But to your question, the answer is yes. So if you do under 20 minutes, it doesn't seem to have quite as strong a benefit. Um, and, and look, it's, if you've had sauna, you know it's stressing you like exercise. It's, so, so I don't know whether the effect compounds on top of what exercise we're doing, but I know my heart rate after 20 minutes of sauna is, is the same as it is hard tempo, <laughs> right, uh, on yeah. a bike. Yeah. So it's not insignificant. And, and your body has to adapt. If it, it keeps getting challenged with this, it has to adapt. And it does that, we know, by increasing blood count and, and vascularity. And it, it, clearly this is significant. You could not yeah. find such substantial effects on cardiovascular disease um, and mortality uh, if it wasn't real. And did the study compare uh, four times to once or twice per week compared to six or seven times per week? It did. It did. So the more, the more uh, frequent and the longer um, it, that people had sauna, the higher the effect on on their cardiovascular disease. Um, did, uh, did they, Harry? Just putting my coach's hat on here. Did they have any athletes uh, in terms of performance uh, do this trial uh, and then look at um, how it was affecting their actual training? Uh, in that period, mm. they they didn't they didn't um, they didn't classify by ath- athletes or not. They just took all comers. Um, so I can't answer that. But there have been separate studies on athletes, specifically on well trained cyclists. But the jury's the jury's out on this. If it is a if it is an effect, it's not going to be it's not going to be massive. But as we all know, everyone that watched the Olympic time trial knows that we don't need a big effect to make the difference between One getting second. dropped, staying on, winning. The whole, the gap between first and last could be 2%, right? Mm. So who knows? Great point. Did you have a question, Dad? I did. Um, and look, we talk a lot about how the body copes and adapts to new stresses and stimulus. And this is something that you have put on yourself um, willingly because you are such an experimenter. <laughs> and uh, do you think it's had a detrimental effect on what's been happening to you in the last two months? And you did mention briefly that you, you felt you've had a little bit of a period where you're, you're struggling a little bit health-wise. Is it a coincidence that this is when you started your um, – we're doing a little experiment here. Have well, you thought about it, this? Yeah, of course I have. Um, no, it, m- me not being well predates sauna. So a good question. Um, if anything, I feel more well uh, from it. And, again, I – it's a really strange run, and, and I know all your listeners can relate. There's no doubt that every athlete can relate to this. As a human, I feel fine. Mm. <laughs> yeah, walking up and down the street, you know, having a cup of coffee, I feel 100% normal, perfect. It's just when I get on a bike, I can tell I'm not quite right. Um, so, so scientifically... Would it be that your body's taking its time to adapt to to what 
stresses you're putting it under, which has been, that's the only different thing that's happened here. Well, it is, except I've also been unwell. Yeah, is, there, is there an adaptation period that's kind of... Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in the running in phase. Uh, and unfortunately, there's nothing much in the way of competition at the moment. Um, so I've got a little bit of time to adapt, like most of us. So I want to talk about your last competition that you did and uh, Dad touched on it before and that was the last race you had, which was the Warney, and you completed that epic race and talk to us about what did you learn from that experience? How did your body uh, adapt and uh, get through that uh, as a whole and specifically uh, what did you learn mm. with nutrition on that day? Oh, well, it's one of the most significant projects <laughs> that I've ever taken on. It, it's um it's it's just a massive it's a it's a it's an epic race as you know we, we need to for those who don't know what we're talking about the melbourne to warner bull is is historically the second oldest ever road race in the world and it used to be the longest until milan san remo outpipped it by two or three kilometers and now it's been reduced to 267k which is still a very significant day on the bike plus 3,000 metres maybe, two two to 3,000 metres, something like that. Yeah. Um, and it is probably one of the sought-after events in Australia, um, for those who don't know anything about the Melbourne to Warrnambool. That is what the event is, and that's what Harry got himself over the line with. Yeah, it's, a, it is a, it's an adventure to get to the start line. <laughs> it's an adventure once you're, once you're in the race, obviously, you know, it is a it is a event sort of steeped in history. It used to be the Warrnambool to Melbourne. It used to be a handicap. It's got some great history. There's a book written about it actually, uh, which I bought after finishing it, um, which is which is really very interesting. And some of the some of the names you look through the honour roll and and some of the names are familiar. There's some very famous um, races that have that have you know done and won the Warney. Um, look, what can I say? Before before I took on the project uh, of the Melbourne to Warrnambool, and that's a whole story in itself. I, in my whole cycling lifetime, which is you know seven, eight, nine years long now, um, I'd done one two hundred k ride, but at sort of you know it took all day with my mates, and we were stopping for coffee and beer and what have you. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that was a long time ago. I'd probably done a handful of 150K rides uh, in my life. And next thing I knew, I was embarking on, on a weekly basis of six to eight hours, 180, 260K rides. Um, so just to, just to, I couldn't fathom before that even being able to do the race, even being able to line up at the race, I couldn't fathom. And I remember there were a few of us in Trivello that started texting each other when they rescheduled the warning and made it possible for us to be able to do it. We started texting each other, oh, thinking about the warning, thinking about the warning. And I said, I'm going to, I said to them, I'm going to text Jerry and talk to him about training requirements before <laughs> I commit. And they were all like, no bullshit, you're not doing that. Commit first, <laughs> commit first, and then find out what you have to do. And I went, all right, fine. And so... Um, had you known what you had to do? 
which you have not committed. <laughs> which leads me to to the point about you know the importance of having mates and a coach, and better still, both. Yeah. Um, you know, taking on such a project. You know, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it without mates um, and a coach and both. And and I learned, apart from that, the importance of doing these big sessions, you know, the main sessions and how every session added up. And in the end, uh, you, know, you look back after six, eight weeks of training and you've, you've trained in the hills, you've, you've trained in the heat, you've trained in the rain, you've trained behind the scooter. Um, and, and, you know, consistency and intensity and all that stuff was, was all part of it. Um, so I learned... I learned the importance of those things and how they could get my body ready to embark on such a race. Because as I said, I'm, I'm not naturally, um, I don't think I'm naturally able to do such things. It seemed curious to me that I'd even be able to do the Melbourne to Warner board at 50 years of age with not as good a cycling and athletic pedigree as, as my friends and, and yourselves. Um, but yeah, having done those sessions really got me to the point where, as it turned out, I could do the race. Um, what else did I learn? Um, look, I got very lucky on the day, I think. The conditions favoured me perfectly. The, the weather, the way the race unfolded, the way the groups formed, where I got positioned, perfect. But... As I was saying to um, our, our common friend Julian, you know, how lucky I am, he, and he, he came up with some one of his usual quips. <laughs> um, I can't remember the exact one, but yeah, you know, it would have been along the lines of you know the harder you train, the luckier you get, or something like that. You know, uh, his what's his what's his most famous one? Um, oh, do if, you, if you want the biscuit, you're going to have to risk it. <laughs> something like that. Um, it's funny as you were saying that dad's dad one of dad's favorite ones came to mind, which was for, just simply fortune favors the brave. And so, right, yeah. exactly. So anyway, that I learned that. The other thing I learned, and this is it won't be wasted on you, is the the planning, how important and how fun the planning was. You know, the 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 few of us that were doing this. Um, and of course, we had Joe doing Grafton the following week. So we had a group of four of us that were that were planning for these long races, and the and the how important it turned out to plan with people that had done the race and that were thinking about the race. This was so important. And in the end, if any of us didn't have a plan, we were stuffed. There's no way you can finish that sort of race, that sort of project without a plan. And then in terms of preparation, you know, we prepared for everything. I, I prepared to the point where I was basically, you know, on rollers, you know, practising being put off balance and recovering because I was anticipating I'm going to get pushed. Uh, and we we planned on how to take a feedback and we went to the velodrome and we practiced with precise waiting in the feedback we figured out where the knot had to be 
on our musettes. This was the level of detail. And I joked at the time, but I'm not kidding. I was more stressed about this than my medical school exams. <laughs> and, but again, had we not prepared like that, it could have all come undone as it did for two guys in front of me that hadn't clearly hadn't practiced their feed bags and went over the bars right in front of me at, at feed zone three. So got to prepare, got to have a plan, got to talk to people that have done it. Um, and, and if you can have a, a, a group of friends and a coach that are all in your corner, so valuable. So that's, that's my experience of the Warney and just an amazing just, just an amazing experience. So, I mean, the whole thing, right from, right from the decision through to completing the race, and then, and now thinking back on it, wondering how I did it, uh, you know, it's it's quite a quite a thing. It's an epic story, and we will have a lot of Ironman athletes dying to know what was your nutrition plan because it is a um, very long race, <laughs> you know, yep. 260, 270 k's. Um, Mm. As long as oh, an Ironman will be a bit longer, obviously, and a bit less intensity. But yep. what was your nutrition plan? Okay. It starts with a calculator, believe it or not. Um, and and this, is, this is my approach. I'm not saying it's the only approach. There are definitely, yeah, you can do it by feel. We know, we know cyclists that can ride for what feels looks like six hours on a bidden. It looks that way to, you know, you know, Jamo and, and a few of these other guys. They don't ever seem to eat or drink and yet they can go for hours and hours. And, and I don't think that's the, that's not the normal situation. I start with a calculator and I work out how much energy is going to be needed to complete this event. Now, how, how do you get a number for that? Well, Look at your Garmin. Look at your training peaks. Look at Strava. Look at just get a get a feel for anything, or or assume it's eight hundred calories an hour for X hours. So I went, all right. If it's if the hammer's down, it's eight hundred calories an hour. That's what I'm going to burn. Seven hour race. All right, fifty six hundred calories. That's the requirement. So somewhere, somehow, my body's going to use that. Now, hopefully, hopefully I can supply my muscles with that number of calories. Then you can, then you start making some assumptions that because you, you couldn't, now think about 5,600 calories. That's two days worth of food, okay? That, so the average person is eating around 3,000 calories a day. So am I really going to sit down to breakfast, lunch, and dinner twice while I'm on a bike in a race? No, you're not, and you don't have to. Um, so you can make some assumptions about what you've already got uh, on board in, in your body because you don't have to eat all the calories you're going to use. So one rule of thumb that has been used, the simple, the simple way is to go, I need to supply my body with 25% of the calories I'm going to consume, okay? Um, and I need to do that across the <clears throat> period just before and during. 
the event. That's a that's a simplistic approach. I think it only works for. I I think that tops out at about three hours, maybe four hours. Um, so I don't think that I think that works for for training, but it doesn't work for a long race like this, or an Ironman. You need to be a little bit more sophisticated with Ironman, I would think. So starting with you know five five and a half thousand cal calorie requirement, you say all right. I've got glycogen, which is stored sugar. Now we've all got, let's say, 2000 calories of stored glycogen. And the body is not going to let you cough up the last 500, probably. All right. So I made the assumption uh, 1500 calories is um, available as stored sugar. All right. I also made some assumptions about the the way the race would go down itself it it should it should be immediately obvious that you cannot go full gas for seven hours and no race ever does um, so there are going to be periods where you're riding easy or tempo and at those points in the race you're not relying on carbohydrate in the same way that you are at high intensity so, so those times you can burn fat and certainly well-trained athletes, um, and I mean well-trained as in has been training for a few months, can access fat stores on their body. And I estimated that uh, over the course of the race, I would be able to access probably about 1,500 calories from fat. It being being times in the race where I wasn't using glycogen um, and the, the intensity was low enough to use fat. So I'm up to 3,000, right? So I need another 2,500 calories um, over a, over a seven-hour period and, and can include just beforehand because whatever you eat on the start line gets, starts to be digested in the race itself. So... You could have 300 calories in your warm-up. Um, so in the end, you know, you it was something like 2,000 calories or thereabouts. You want to put a little bit in your bidden, but not you don't want to make the bidden too sweet or too sticky because that impedes water absorption when it gets too caloric, calorific. Um, and I basically advocate, and, and again, this is just my approach. There are many different approaches, and I know what works for Jerry doesn't work for me and probably vice versa, but I start with the principle of start with real food and then move towards increasingly artificial food where it's, it's, just, it's just calories in the form of a gel. So I, I started with things like fruitcake and rice balls and dates and bananas and what have you, and worked my way uh, through to bars and then ultimately at the end, um, gels. I, I also took the approach of um, eating every 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes to space it out, not tax my gut too much and keeping in mind that where there was opportunity, I took it because 
in a race like the Warney, it can get hairy very quickly. And, and so you've got to take your chances when you get them. Um, so that, that was my approach for calories. As far as electrolyte goes, um, that depends very much on the temperature on the day. And, um, but a reasonable rule, rule of thumb is, you know, something like a bid in an hour is ideal if you can get through it. Most people can't. So if, you, if you're just aiming for that and get close, um, I dropped my first bidden and ha- happened to have packed a, a little 250 mil um, sort of juice popper full of water and got through that. So, you know, six, seven biddens over the race is probably about right. Electrolytes, my approach is four to one, sodium to potassium. Magnesium seems to help cramping, so if you can get you can either put that in, get a formula that does it, or you can take um, salt tablets specifically. Um, that's important. And then um, I had on me a 50 mil bottle of pickle juice because I just had, with my motor pacing sessions a few other times, at the end of the training I'd been cramping. And I just don't think you can... You know, you're putting your body under pressure um, in, a, in a long event like that, and cramping can be a problem. So I brought this pickle juice, and lo and behold, I started cramping at the 50-kilometre mark, which I've never done ever in my life. And I sucked on this pickle juice a drop at a time, I reckon, for the next 220 k's and got through the race just. Um, but pickle juice is a curious is a curious but effective treatment, which more more and more people are starting to appreciate. Um, it works. So anyway, that's that's my potted uh, version of of fueling for long uh, fueling for sort of longer events. It would be similar, obviously, uh, for an Ironman, but but probably. Um, Less periods of super high intensity, obviously, but a longer duration race. Um, so that would need to be taken into account. And again, these Ironmen often are run in parts of the year and parts of the world that are hot. So that's another consideration as well in terms of fluid and electrolytes. In terms of uh, looking back um, and in hindsight, um, your plan and your execution, would you do something different with your nutrition now that you've had the experience of understanding the intensity at the start and the lulls in the middle and everything you did? Were you, were you really happy with, with how it panned out? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, I, that one I got right. Fantastic. And that one the, I got sec- right. the second question is, you obviously were instructed early on that whatever you're going to do on race day, you need to practice. Um right from your very first long session and really learn what's going to gel with, to use a, a pun, uh, with your stomach. And and obviously the race has intensity that we can't match early on because actually we, we do ride with the NRS riders at the start of this race. And that is something that people often forget when they're doing this event that you're riding with the, the best young riders who are probably going to get pro tours in Europe. And we are masters riders riding with them on the start line for the first two minutes if you can hang on or two hours or however long you can hang on for. So the requirements and intensity are quite incredible throughout the day. So 
Mm. Mm. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't change anything I did there. We did get it right. Um, it's, it's reasonably easy at the start, and the biggest challenge is just concentrating. It's mentally taxing. I know Joe always said he felt more mentally exhausted at the end of the race than physically, um, and that was certainly true. Just the just the number of people at your shoulders, at your bars, and the and the things like the gap would open and it would close literally in one second. So it takes a little while to get your head around filling that gap yourself, moving up, moving up, moving up. And I remember getting to the front going, oh, wow, I got to the front and I was sort of feeling happy about it. And then I looked up and I was at the back again, mm-hmm. you know, literally in what felt like 10 seconds. Um, that that was uh, quite a, a thing. But also the way we prepared was we knew the start would be a high concentration period, but not but flat and not necessarily all that hard. You'd be in the draft. Um, no problem, and then it would get hard. So our efforts were, as we train for, we have that period, that running period where where our group trains at sort of tempo sub threshold. Then we have a high intensity period, and then get <laughs> hang on and and get the rest of the way there. So it's I think we trained um, as closely as we could to the to the way the event would go. Of course, you can't predict every situation um but you know in just thinking through the plan it it enables you to come up with at least a few um solutions along the way this is extremely valuable information and it is a major problem for ironman athletes and even half ironman uh that they are either uh, over nutritioning themselves if that's a word or underfeeding themselves and it's quite it's a lot more common than people think to overhydrate and overfeed themselves because you hear so much about the importance of nutrition. And so to get even just some sort of numbers, like you're saying now, is really valuable. I want you to comment on that, but I have some follow-up questions. And my first one is, uh, in that bit in an hour of electrolytes, yep. um, so that, that is water with, with some sort of uh, sodium ratio of four to one of electrolytes. Is yep. that correct? It's a, it's yeah. a sachet of hydrolyte or something. What something like, I mean, I used hydrolyte and I used one from Scratch Labs, which seemed to have a reasonable mix for me. But again, just on this point, and this is, this is fundamental, whatever, it's a, it's a stupid, it's not a stupid rule. It's the most valuable rule for anyone out there. Never try anything for the first time on race day, right? That's all, that it should be obvious, and yet so many people do, and so many people like me attempted to try something new on race day because you heard about it because you're researching it right up to the race. If you haven't tried it weeks out, don't do it on race day. And we, you know, the the guys that were preparing practiced everything, including how much stuff to put in your bottle and could you stomach the food you know we we had rice ball recipes going between us and 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 i practiced for weeks wrapping rice balls and and eating them like i had to because again you've got one hand on the bar and you've got another hand fishing around so everything if you hadn't even thought about where you're going to put your stuff in your pockets i mean mind you you think i'm bad 
Richard Harris. He had a spreadsheet, right? So, um, but again, this is this is brilliant preparation. And again, surrounding yourself with guys that they don't trip. You know, it's not trivial. This information thought in advance will save your race. It will make your race. Um, so, anyway, I've, I've talked you off the off the topic. Uh, yeah, well, we'll keep going with it because. By my calculation, uh, you yeah. So as you said, you had about two and a half thousand calories over the seven hours because of the rest that was either there or pre-race. Something like that. Yep. Yeah, approximately. I would say about a thousand calories of that would have been hammer drink. Is that correct? I didn't take hammer, but because you I'm, had a, you had a food drink or you just had food. Sorry, I only had food and I had a little bit of in the scratch labs um, powder. There's probably 80 calories per serve or something like maybe 120 calories per serve. So there might be 20, I think it was probably 20 grams of carbohydrate in the salt mix. So that that was one way to get some carbohydrate on board without um, making a really gluggy I mean, don't get me wrong, I think Hammer make great products and I have used them, but for me, they don't, I, I find them difficult to digest and I suffer after the event. Um, whereas if I'm eating rice balls um, and dates and bananas and fruitcake, uh, afterwards I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I assumed you had the Hammer because most, yeah. most of us do and I'm someone that, is the opposite. I respond so well to a drink like that and yep. uh, very poorly to food. Um, mm, that was mm. going to be my question because I thought, how could you have had all that food, those snacks, as well as the hammer? I didn't um, think that, no, no, but it makes sense. That, yeah, it was yeah. all it was all based on the snacks. Well, that's good. Um, I guess my follow up question is then, how how do you change nutrition, uh, and how do we feel ourselves between higher intensity events? And I'm talking higher intensity right down to maybe a half hour hour race, and the difference between that and endurance. Well, I mean, we've talked about endurance. So endurance really is about um, ensuring that you've got enough energy to complete a session, all right? So endurance being, I guess, three hours plus, all right? Um, You're at risk of running out of, of energy because you're, depending on what you're doing, because your stored energy is not sufficient. Particularly if you're undertaking dietary modification, which we can talk about. Like we've talked about it in the past, but yeah, yeah. you know, if you're if you're trying to train your metabolism with a generally low carbohydrate diet, you're you're not going to have stored much stored glycogen. So your approach to an endurance training session it necessarily needs to incorporate consumed um, energy probably including uh, glucose, okay, carbohydrate. Um, and then it's you get your calculator out. I, again, you, I don't think you can go wrong with a calculator. It's not the only approach, but it works. So you figure out roughly what you're going to use, roughly what you've got stored, and then you work out backwards and then break it into pieces. Um, break it into pieces just before and during the uh during the session with respect to intensity um as we've discussed before i believe 
at higher intensity, at the highest intensity, most of us uh, are exclusively using carbohydrate as fuel. The muscles, muscle is very happy to burn anything as fuel, anything that crosses its path. It'll burn amino acids, it'll burn fatty acids, it'll burn carbohydrate. But when it's working hard, all it wants is glucose. So as long as you have enough glucose, which is either in your circulation from having just been consumed within the last two or three hours, or uh, whether it's in stored glycogen, which can be released very quickly, um, as long as that's adequate for the session, again, get, get, your, get your calculator out. At, at full gas, you're going to burn 800 calories an hour. Okay. So if your time trial is 30 minutes, you need 400 calories. You've got that. You've got that. Now, do you want a little bit, bit extra just in case? Absolutely. Gel on the start line. Done. Right. You're not going to run out of, you're not going to run out of fuel unless you are on a ketogenic diet, in which case you are going to run out of fuel <laughs> and possibly it's too late to do anything about it. You possibly couldn't eat enough gels to get them. They just don't last long enough. So that's that's my approach. Again, it's a bit formulaic, um, a bit basic, really. But it's yeah, the science of what fuel, how we partition fuel, what we use at particular intensity. That's well known, well well understood. Um, I do believe my my asterisk with that. I do believe that very, very well-trained athletes can burn fat right up to, right up to threshold. Whereas the rest of us mortals, we're at that, at sub-threshold, we're burning predominantly, almost exclusively carbohydrate. The threshold, there's no question. Um, but it is a worthwhile endeavour to train when, for periods on a low-carbohydrate diet to push that curve so that you're burning um, fatty acids right up to sub-threshold. Because then when, when race day comes, that's what you'll do, and you'll conserve glycogen. And I think in, in a sport like Ironman, the person with glycogen at the end of the race does very well relative to the one that runs out. And I know that I mean, I, I look after a number of patients that say I was going great until the 30K mark of the run. And you're like, that's the, diff that's, that, that's the difference right there. It's not that long, is it? You, you know, you're almost home, but if you run out of glycogen, that's a very long 12Ks, isn't it? Such a common story as well. I want to stay on the calculator note because do you have a tool or a method to help yourself calculate this accurately. There are online tools. And as you mentioned, you could refer to your Garmin, your Strava, your training peaks. You have that 800 calorie kind of rule for full gas. What is there an a really accurate tool you can use personally? Uh, no, because Garmin, well, Garmin and training peaks are only based off you know, general equations. If you've input your height and weight correctly. And True. True that. I No, is my short answer. I, I, I it's all, it's all rule of thumb because in the end, you, if you get near to it, you can figure out if it works for you. I, I will say this. I used the calculator uh, method and I lost so much weight in my training for the warning that 
clearly I was under-egging it. I had to have. I mean, I lost probably in the last few weeks, I lost a kilogram a week in weight, and I was eating everything <laughs> in sight. So you, you did mention over overfueling, but it, it is because I can't give an individual answer. Really, it's a framework and then it's trial and error. I wish I could be more scientific, but I, I just I haven't found an approach that's precise for everyone. I certainly don't think a calculator exists online that could do it. And if, if, if it purports to do so, it's probably full of it, in my view. Awesome. It's, it's probably a, um, I thought you were going to say something, Dad. That's why I, I paused for a second. Yeah. Well, I was going to say on the calculator front, it, like you said, those online ones are probably just different variations of a generic equation. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, I just wanted to just briefly touch on um, something that's really intrigued me over the, the journey of 40 years of endurance uh, training and racing and nutrition. And, and we're talking specifically race nutrition here, um, not, you know, everyday eating. Um, the, 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 the debate between solid fuels in your digestive system in the middle of a, an event as compared to liquid fluid that's, that's going to probably get the same calories um, and the, the idea that there's a compromise going on because blood is being taken away from the working muscles to digest the solid food as compared to drinking um, the equivalent calories in a fluid drink. Um, yeah, just, I really want to hear your what you think about that. And you you advocate eating, and and I don't. I'm definitely not an eater, and we both get the good outcome. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask. You know, how is that compromise uh, the solids versus liquid debate um, in your eyes? Mm. Uh, and everybody's different, so mm. there's no one hard fast rule here. Yeah, I mean, you, by the time it passes into the small intestine, it's the same. Because most of the digestion of carbohydrate occurs after the stomach. The stomach really does the protein part of it. Um, so from an energetics point of view, from, a, from a, a blood diversion point of view, I'm not sure that it is much different um, is, is my general thinking on it. Um, and I think there is a large group of people that, suffer significant gastric distress and gut distress with some of the um, engineered fuels. Um, but there are a very fortunate group of people that aren't. They can, they can consume large quantities of, of you know, maltodextrose and, and so forth and not suffer any gut inflammation. I mean, I, I, I don't want to... Um, there's no question, if you can tolerate and do well on these fuels, then then it's perfect because it's so convenient. It's in your bidden, mm. right? But if you are suffering, um, if you're suffering either during or after, then the alternative is is to eat food. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the approach I take. I look after some people that use perpetuum religiously, and I think that's perfectly fine because at the end of the day we're trying to fuel fuel for exercise um and for those that don't i advocate eating and i, I myself i i can't i simply can't have even one bidden with three scoops of perpetuum it 
it renders me fairly useless for the, the rest of the day when I get home. I have a question on quality of foods and uh, something we haven't asked you yet. And hmm. I myself had found a lot of uh, videos and research on is low GI versus high GI foods for uh, both hmm. just general nutrition and training. What are hmm. your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on um, whether we should be splitting these up in nutrition and training? Oh, totally. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, guess we should start with sort of definitions because um, there's a lot of misconception about um, low GI and high GI and what, what on earth that means. But it's it might be interesting to you to know that um, glycemic index is a is a, some, a concept that was invented, I don't know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago um, that would assess the amount of um, sugar released into the blood over a two-hour period after consuming a food relative to white bread, right? <laughs> so white bread is like, you know, equals 100. <laughs> so the glycemic of white bread is the, is the standard and then things are measured either, so 50 grams of white bread is measured relative to 50 grams of apples, relative to 50 grams of a Mars bar, et cetera. A white bread meaning it when you eat it, it just goes the glucose goes no. straight into the blood. Stream. Well, white white bread goes through as it goes through, right? And it's just the reference point. Okay. So if you drank, if you ate jelly beans, okay, fifty grams of jelly beans has a higher glycemic index than white bread, <laughs> but fifty grams of um, I don't know milk has a lower glycemic index, but so I find, again, it's the amount of carbohydrates released into the body in a two-hour window. For, for training, clearly, you want high GI. A banana is high GI. A piece of fruitcake is high GI. You don't want it sitting in your gut and or not releasing the carbohydrate into the bloodstream because the quicker and more effectively you get the carbohydrate into the blood, the better your chance your muscle has of using it. That's the first thing. But in terms of um, not training, uh, then I don't find glycemic index to be particularly relevant. Um, I'm more interested in, I guess, insulin, which is the hormone released in response to the appearance of nutrient in the blood. I, as, a, as a medical professional, I've come to understand that chronically high levels of insulin mean only bad things. And from a, from a general health point of view, uh, metabolic health point of view. So I'm interested in foods that don't trigger insulin as much, no matter what their glycemic index are. So for instance, um, well, cheese doesn't have a glycemic index because it's, it's not carbohydrate. Um, steak doesn't have a glycemic index because it's not carbohydrate. And yet these things can and do trigger insulin in some way or another. Um, but in general, things like nuts and protein and fat um, don't trigger the same insulin response. Um, there's other evidence to suggest that high GI foods, so foods that release a lot of sugar 
into the blood are associated with food addiction and cravings. So the, the other important factor is how satiated you are after a particular food. I, and I, I may have um, uh, given you the story before, but have you ever thought about, you probably wouldn't because you guys are super healthy, but I reckon I've eaten a medium-sized pizza and still been able to eat dessert, right? Um, no, I don't do this anymore. De definitely have, yeah. Right, okay. But could you, and what's a, what's a medium pizza weigh, a kilogram, let's say, right? Yeah. It's pretty heavy. Yeah. Could you eat a kilogram of steak? Could you eat a kilogram of cheese? Could you eat a kilogram of nuts? No. Why? Because your brain goes, that is enough. I'm satiated, I'm full, I don't want any more. And carbohydrate and particularly high GI foods, they don't, they don't stop you eating. Mm. So, again, one of the key lessons that I give to the people I look after is if you don't address hunger, you will fail because hunger is powerful. It'll kick you while you're down, right? You're trying to lose weight. If you let yourself get hungry, you're in trouble, okay? You will, you will not succeed if you let yourself get hungry. So how do you stop yourself getting hungry? You have to address it. You can't ignore it. So you have to eat food that satiates you. And the answer to this is, is almost always to have something that's high in oil or fat and hang on, pretend, you know, have a handful of almonds or cashews and hang on, or have a protein shake with some MCT oil in it and hang on for 10 minutes and watch, watch how the feeling of hunger disappears. And then, then the only reason you'd eat is, you know, other reasons, stress, habit, et cetera. But at least if you're mindful, oh, well, the hunger's gone. Now I, now I just want to eat corn chips because I like eating corn chips or I'm stressed. Yeah, I'm fidgety. I want to do something. Um, but again, it, it, once you remove hunger, you know, you're, you're a good way of the way there to liberating yourself. I've actually used that trick with uh, peanut butter at night. If I was still yep. hungry after dinner, I've just had a spoonful or two of peanut butter and I noticed Absolutely. that goes straight Absolutely. away. So does low GI equal a less insulin response or is, are there low GI foods that still? Good question. Not so they're generally correlated, okay, but not always. Yep. Not always. Um, but, yeah, I mean, by and large, you can make the assumption that if a food is, um, is low GI, then it will also have a, a blunt uh, insulin response. And I'm not sure if this is relevant, but then does fibre come into it? Because uh, are you aiming for high GI, low fibre, foods uh, mm -hmm. sorry so low fiber is easy to digest is that correct or was it again that wrong? Yeah, yeah, well that's right no exactly so yes. fiber doesn't really come into the equation yeah yeah so, but if you were you know i think the clear example in my head is white bread versus wholemeal bread uh, white bread is low fiber wholemeal high fiber but for mm -hmm. uh events you know racing you'd want low fiber because you don't want the body to be you choose white bread over wholemeal bread in this example because you kind of want 
Oh, high, definitely. High GI, you, you low definitely fiber would, but that's that's probably more digestive. Again, yeah, you're go, you're going to work harder to try to digest that food. I think. And do you have any thoughts of yeah? I guess um, any more specifically in your day to day meals, um, it's on the on the low GI, high GI, low fiber, high fiber thing, or it's it's coming down to a hunger and. I I put it more. I mean, I think you, you're on the right track. You're trying to um, reduce the number of spikes of insulin. So if you if you typically stay to less carbohydrate, you'll do that. Yeah. And if you're going to eat carbohydrate, then again, if you have something that is a low GI, by definition, it's releasing less carbohydrate into the bloodstream, and therefore will have a reduced insulin response, which is good. With all these things in mind, I kind of want to finish off on this topic of balance. Um, and I want to start by asking, how are you helping your patients uh, get this balance right? And we have spoken about this before in the other podcasts, mm. but it's always worth revisiting. Get the balance right between being on a diet and mm. training on a diet, but also having a balanced uh, daily nutrition meal plan diet. Mm. So it's a that's a complex and and it's a really good question and i'm just trying to figure out the best way to approach it i think at the at the sort of high level it's important um it's important that the that the individual understands their priorities understands that dietary modification doesn't necessarily equate to improve performance straight away. It's a good thing for the for this person, if they have a coach, for the coach to be on board and supportive and the person to have expectations that match what, what they're doing. And I gave the classic example. If, you're, if you lower the amount of carbohydrate you're eating, you should understand that your time trial performance or longer, longer effort performance is not going to be what it will be later after adaptation. Um, in terms of the sort of the balance between health and performance, there is a balance, I reckon, because we know that we know already that things like a, like fasting and a ketogenic diet um, and low intensity in exercise, you know, sort of zone two is better for us um, for for living longer and living healthier than the extremes you know if you're chronically smashing i mean i i wouldn't want to look at the insulin resistance levels of of young nrs riders but i i suspect you know with the amount of carbohydrate they're consuming uh it it could be it could be um, very interesting, but you know it's a balance, and I I think you know certainly the the program um, that we are on or variants like it include quite a good amount of zone two ish training, so somewhere between able to talk, you know, while doing it and and high high tempo is very good for our metabolism 
not necessarily any good for your sprint. So I, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's my approach is really it, it is you, you are trying to balance these things. What's good for you in the long run, what's good for your performance, what's good for you right now. They don't always, they don't always align. Um, I don't know if I've answered you your question properly. Am I right in thinking that your view is um, the way we probably train as, as motivated age group athletes that want the best out of ourselves isn't the, actually the best for us long-term and putting ourselves on these certain diets isn't possibly the best, but you're saying when you take it back just a notch, uh, that is the most beneficial. Well, I don't know because because you know health is a spectrum of things, right? It includes your how you feel, you know, your attitude and your mental health. When you're when you're setting personal bests, you know, winning races, that sort of thing, that that has a very positive effect. So there is definitely an argument to continue to compete and be extreme from a physiological point of view. Um, and that will give you benefit. But if I took an average person off the street, I would just say the more time you can do in zone two, the better your health will be. I'm glad that's your answer because as you, as I was giving you that summary, I thought, ah, this isn't right because this makes me think that maybe I'm pushing too hard, you know, And but you're so correct in that. Hmm. Um, there's so much more to it than this one-dimensional view. So my comment was really quite one-dimensional, I think, in, in an incorrect way. So uh, mm. I'm quite happy with your answer. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly the approach I take. You know, I'm I, I'm like the rest of us. I want to I want to race hard. I want to push my pedals hard. I want to do well. I want my I want to see my heart rate at new numbers, power at new numbers, etc. But again, that's not necessarily the advice I give to an average person. That is trying to um, be more healthy or generally fitter. You know, I, I think you can achieve that with with some pretty simple training intervention. I guess every athlete's aware that an Ironman is a completely abnormal event, and so is the Melbourne to Warney, but they're not they're not the norm, and they're they're one off kind of events that you do. Well, you know, any racing actually, you know, is not. You know, we're in a bubble. You you probably forget this, and you're you're deep in the bubble. Um, I'm in the bubble, but at, at, I get to see outside the bubble. You never get to look outside. I'm telling you, most people don't do anything, right? If you're exercising, you're in the you're abnormal already. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Try and get people to exercise five times thirty minutes a day. Good luck with that. You know, doc, this is this is why um, drug companies uh, are, you know are doing as well as they do. It's because most people can't exercise and and do a little bit of fasting and a little bit of uh, food restriction right you just do those three things a little bit of fasting a little bit of caloric restriction and some exercise and virtually 90 percent of the chronic diseases known to us disappear mm. but that doesn't occur because mm. most people don't do anything mm. i'm not judging i'm just saying that's the, that's my observation is yep. It's really hard to get people to do something. Dad, as we're wrapping up this podcast, uh, did you have any topic or question that could potentially make us go another 20 minutes? But <laughs> did you have anything that you wanted to touch on for Harry? 
No, I, I really uh, love the the way the conversation's gone uh, in this podcast, and uh, we could talk for hours, as as uh, you and I have been known to do, Harry, a lot. Yep. Um, <laughs> and we love discussing all topics, and it's really good that everybody out there listening can hear that um, not one thing works the same for everybody, and that's you know everybody's got differences, and no, and that's no different to your training. Um, your program might work for you, Jordan, and it might not be good for you, Harry. And and same with your nutrition. And you need to be practicing your nutrition as much as you practice your training. Um, and that will be the thing that will make it work best for you, knowing and understanding how your body responds to different inputs of variations of solid fuel, liquid fuel, and and there is no right and wrong in this. I, I, I want to add... Jerry, and I, and I don't know how much you appreciate what your program is doing as well. It's, I, I, I want to emphasise that when you set someone a program, you are training their metabolism just as much as you're training their neuromuscular development. It, it's when you give someone a program, those sessions have a very strong effect on the metabolism of that individual. So it makes perfect sense to tie that in with nutrition, both off and on the bike or run or swim. Um, they are inseparable. And the, and the more quickly people realise that you can't do one without the other, mm. the better off they are. And certainly we've seen the successes of some of the people that have finally gone, okay, I need to sort it all out. I can't just be eating whatever shit I want off and on the bike, but train properly. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way because you're not just training your leg strength or your, you know, your heart and your lungs, you are definitely training your liver, your fat stores, your pancreas. It's Digestion. all being trained. Yep. Mm. yep. It's so true, isn't it? And and that's one of the things that is important for everybody to understand that um, the, the whole package is is the best outcome. And, and I know that a lot of the people who've gone through your program have really understood when you starve the body of certain percentages of carbohydrate, fats, and and any type of fuel, the actual ability to fulfil the training session is just decreasing dramatically, minute by minute, as you go through the session. And yep. that's an alarming uh, realization that people come to. Oh, far out! What's wrong with me? Well, it's actually nothing wrong with you. It's just yep. that the body is learning to adapt to the limitations you're putting on it, and that's something that. People think a lot of the time I performed poorly today, but it actually could have been that you were you performed nutritionally poorly. Yeah. You're actually physically in great shape, but exactly your nutrition performance was substandard. Mm-hmm. Exactly. As always, I have a list of topics, and this conversation has been so valuable that we've gotten to half of them. So we will yeah. inevitably have to get you on again. Uh, but <laughs> is there anything, Harry, that you wanted to talk about to finish off, or touch on, or tell any of the listeners uh, in today's episode that we didn't get to? Uh, I, look, we touched on it. Um, these are strange times, and you know, Terry said, "Be kind to yourself." And that's that's 
that's what I'd like to reiterate. This is a good time to take stock, be grateful for what we have. Don't um, expect you to don't don't expect to feel normal in an abnormal time like this. You know, I, I don't I don't know, but I don't think it feels too different to what wartime would feel like. You know, from from the you know this sort of sense of claustrophobia, particularly in Australia, where we're used to travelling freely and as we want, um, un uncertainty with with our work and with our businesses. Um, you know, chronically missing out on things that we that we've taken for granted: going to the football, racing a bike race, catching up with friends. It's it is a really shitty time. And I, I just think um, I wanted to just reiterate what, what Jerry said, which is about, you know, self-kindness. Self and that's, that's all I have for you today, Jordan. Well, thank you very much. That is a great way to finish. As always, we appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm sure we'll get some questions. And uh, if you want to work with Harry, the my performance doctor, you definitely can. Uh, he has a range of programs that you can do with regards to weight loss, uh, nutrition for um, racing, ketogenic diets, the work. So, Harry, where can they find you and what's, how's the best way to get in contact with you? Um, so the, the best way is to contact me through my website, which is myperformancedoctor, or one word, dot com, um, or reach out to uh, one of you guys and happy for you to forward on my number and just send me a, send me a message and... Um, Normally pretty good with responding. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, you can send me an email at Dr. Harry, or one word, um, drharry at myperformancedoctor.com. Perfect. Once again, thank you very much for coming on. That is it for this epic episode, and we'll see you next time.